Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Our series is called Jesus! Exclamation Point. And we're really focusing on the life of Jesus, not just his birth. I mean, that's something that we often do around Christmas. I think I've done, as I shared with you last week, probably 30 Christmas series over the years. And many of them have been about his nativity. But this year we're looking a little later in his life. Because as important as his baby book is, his life is so critical and so important for us. So each week we're looking at some aspect of Jesus' life and putting an exclamation point on that. Prince of Peace. And last week... The message was called Savior! Exclamation point. But today, I'm going to preach Savior! Exclamation point 2.0. We're going to focus again on the importance of Jesus as our Savior, and we do so for good reason. When the angel appeared to Joseph in the book of Matthew and was explaining to Joseph why Mary was pregnant, I mean, Mary was a virgin, Joseph was engaged to her, she shows up pregnant, Joseph, know, Joseph knows the baby's not his. Fortunately for Mary, the angel came to Joseph and explained it. And here's what the angel said to Joseph. She will have a son, and you shall name him Jesus, meaning Savior. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which was the shortened verb uh, form of Jehovah Hoshea, which means God is our salvation. So that's what the angel said to Joseph. You're going to name the baby Jehovah Hoshea, Jesus, because, look at this, he will save his people from their sins. So when the angel came to explain the coming of Jesus into the world, it was he shall save his people from their sins. It was not he will be a great example. He was that. It was not he will be a great teacher with a lifestyle everyone should emulate. That's true. But that's not why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save. Let me read to you now from the book of 1 Corinthians. This is later on now. It's probably about A.D. 60, somewhere in there. It's probably about 30 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. It's the church age, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was probably more like America than any other city in the first century. It was a place where all kinds of belief systems and thoughts Cross. There was Roman power, Roman muscle. There was Greek intellectualism, Eastern mysticism, Hebrew religion, along with other religions of the world. So it was a very sophisticated cosmopolitan city. So the idea was if a person was going to go to Corinth and bring something, you know, for those people to listen to, you really had to, you had to bring your most sophisticated game. So I tell you that for this reason. Look at this verse. Paul said, when I came to you, my friends, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words and great learning. That's what they loved in Corinth. Look at this. For while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. Why would Paul say to the most sophisticated audience of his era, I decided to forget everything else and preach Jesus Christ? I know the answer from the Bible. Jesus is everything. Let me make a very powerful statement. 
You can do everything this book says to do. You can obey every rule. You can keep every law. You can do every good thing. You can do everything this book has to, do, has to say. But if you leave this life without Jesus saving you, you will leave this life and spend an eternity in hell. Now, that's a very painful thing to say. It's a painful thing to have to say. But I just got to be honest with you. You can be the best person in the world and miss the salvation that Jesus brings, and it won't be enough. This is why the angel said to Joseph, his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's why Paul told the most sophisticated audience in his era, I've decided to forget everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, the reason why we're looking at Jesus as Savior again is last week we looked at Jesus reaching the last person in the world. We talked about in John chapter 4, there's the story of the woman from Samaria. And we saw that Samaria was considered outcast by a lot of the people in Jesus' day because years before they had given up on their Jewishness and they had brought in a pagan religion. But as we saw last week, Jesus came to Samaria to meet a woman who, her nation was not only an outcast, she was an outcast in her nation. She'd been married five times, had five divorces, and was sleeping with a man who wouldn't give her his name. So, I mean, if you're going to look at the stories of Jesus and figure the last person in the world that Jesus would come to have anything to do with, it would have been the woman in Samaria. And I share with you at the end of that message that for me, I love that story. It's my favorite Bible story because since I know everything about me, I feel like the last person in the world that God would have anything to deal with. I, I just, I love that story for that reason. I mean, I identify with her. You say, Mark, you grew up in a pastor's family. You've been a pastor for years. Yeah, but I know everything about me. I know all the stuff I've done. I know all, me. I know all the stuff I would have done if I could have gotten by with it. And so when I, when I read that story about the last person in the world that Jesus would have anything to do with, I, I, I identify with that. And at the end of the message last week, I said, don't we all feel that way? But you know, no one has said this to me, but I, I, I know human nature, and I'm guessing that there were those who listened to that sermon last week who kind of backed up from that a little bit and say, said to themselves, you know, I don't really feel like the last person in the world. I'm not perfect. Why do we say that? It's like it's news. <laughs> I'm not perfect. But I don't think I'm the last person in the world. And, and someone could say, well, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to be a good neighbor. And I really think I'm, I'm really, I, you know, I'm even maybe a little bit religious. So, Mark, you know, I can see what you're talking about with the woman of Samaria being the last person in the world. But I really don't feel like I'm the last person in the world. I'm, I don't, I'm not even sure I'm in the top 50%. But I'm not, I'm not the last person in the world. And here's what's interesting. If I were to ask you with that thought process, do you think you're going to heaven? Well, the statistics say in the United States that the answer would probably be, be yes. I think if anybody gets in, I think I'm probably going to go because I am a pretty good person. I was talking about this with Mary Alice at breakfast this morning. I love the gospel of John. The Gospels are the four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus. The first three we call synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they contain very similar material and a very similar pattern of history. John, on the other hand, is a very different kind of gospel. It was the last one written. Mark was probably written somewhere around AD uh, 57, 58, somewhere in there, but the Gospel of John was probably written pretty close to AD 90. 
And, and God had an assignment for John that was a little bit different from the other gospel writers. John presents Jesus as God. And so in the gospel of John, which by the way, most of the gospel of John is the last week of Jesus' life. That's interesting. But in the book of John, there are stories, not many, but a few stories about people that Jesus interacted with. We saw one of them last week in John 4, which is the story of the Samaritan woman. It's not included in the synoptics. But Jesus did something kind of interesting, or the Holy Spirit did something kind of interesting, because in the gospel of John, there are back-to-back two stories of two very different people. I, I went to the later chapter, chapter 4 first, because I, I identify with a Samaritan woman. But butted up against chapter 4 is chapter 3. And if the Samaritan woman was the last person in the world that Jesus, we would think, would want to have anything to do with, we're now going to go to chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first person. If you're drawing up the agenda of the Son of God born into our world, and he's going to come to Israel, and he's going to have a ministry, we're going to think the first person he's going to hang out with is the guy in chapter 3. He's the first person in the world. We would assume, we would figure if anybody's okay, if anybody's ready to receive the Messiah, we would figure his name would be Nicodemus. Let's meet him. Hey, just so you'll know what Nicodemus means, I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Anybody wearing Nike today? Anybody got the swoosh on in a t-shirt or shoe? Well, Nicodemus, first part of his name comes from the name Nike. So every time you see the swoosh, I want you to think about the story. What does Nike mean? It means champion. It means winner. It means victor. Demas means people. So his name means winner. (laughs) I mean, it's like he's all that. But not only is Nicodemus a very smart man and a winning guy, he's also very religious. He is a powerful person. He is a senator. There was a, a ruling group of Jewish people that the Romans allowed to function as long as they didn't get in the way of the Romans. They were called the Sanhedrin. There were 70 of these senators and these senators decided all things. They decided what was legal for Jews, what was religiously right and what was ethically right. So Nicodemus is not only one of the senators, he's one of the most respected men in the Senate. Let's go a little further. He is a Pharisee. We need to unpack that today because many of us who grew up studying the Bible, when we hear the term Pharisee, we automatically think these are bad people. But let's, let's look at who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the most religious people in Jesus' day. And about 100 years before Jesus came along, the Pharisees came into being, and really they were a good group. i got to be honest with you. If I go back to the first century and look at belief systems, I would have probably identified with the Pharisees more than anybody else. Let me, let me tell you why that's important and why I say that. As I shared with you last week, there was so much depression during the intertestament period about being Jewish. There were a lot of people who gave up on being Jewish. And strangely enough, one of the groups of people that pretty well gave up on the Bible were priests. And they were members of a a group called Sadducees. And they would sort of be like the uber-liberal religious people of our time. They didn't believe the Bible except for the books of Moses. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Can you imagine the priests didn't believe in an afterlife? 
And so they pushed back against the Bible and said, we don't believe this anymore. And along came the Pharisees and they said, we do believe the Bible. We believe all the Bible we, that they had at that time, which would have been the Old Testament. And they said, we believe in the miraculous. We believe in angels. We believe in miracles. They started out very well. But after a while, they began to get the respect of the people. You know, the Pharisees dressed like Pharisees. And so it came to be that people looked up to them as the sort of religious elite of their time. And the strange thing was the Pharisees went from being people that took a strong stand on what the Bible had to say to being very showy. And, well, they weren't real. By the time Jesus came along, they were the religious elites who put on a religious show. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee that kind of helps us understand what they were like. The Bible says once there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. Well, Pharisees did that three times a day. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Now, in our world today, tax collectors aren't our favorite people, maybe, but it's not like in the first century. And, and I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but let me just put it this way. Rome had people collect taxes, and for the Jewish people, no, self no, no self-respecting person would collect taxes. So thieves and the worst of the worst became tax collectors. And so consequently, they would take way more taxes than they should from the people. And Rome didn't care as long as Rome got their cut. Tax collectors were considered so bad that they didn't even qualify as sinners. If you look at the New Testament, so many times the Bible says the tax collectors and the sinners, they were worse than the sinners the way people looked at it. So here's Jesus' story. Jesus said, two people go to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Everybody said, sure, they go to the temple three times every day. That's what they do. And then the other guy was a tax collector. Now, listen to the Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee stood apart by himself and prayed, I thank you, God, that I'm not greedy, dishonest, or an adulterer like everybody else. In other words, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else. That was his prayer. And then he said, I thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there. Then look at what he said. I fast two days a week, and I give you a tenth of all my income. So they were the most religious people in Jesus' day. And we're talking about Nicodemus, and we're saying that he was a Pharisee. Jesus had a word for most Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. To us in our English, hypocrite has a meaning. But in the Greek, hypocrite came from two words. Hupo, which means under. We get our word hypo, like hypodermic from it, which means under the skin. Hypo means under, and krites means to judge. In other words, they judged everybody else under a mask. Have you ever met anybody like that in religion? They judged everybody else, but they themselves are wearing a mask. And that's what Jesus called the Pharisees. But here is something you must grasp. Nicodemus is not a hypocrite. He's serious. In fact, when we meet him, he's on his way to see Jesus to tell him something. Almost all of Nicodemus' friends in the Senate, the other Pharisees, hate Jesus. A few weeks before, Jesus had gone, over, gone in and thrown over the money tables and driven out the money changers. And the Pharisees were connected to this business in the temple, and they wanted him dead. So Nicodemus is going to see Jesus to tell Jesus that he's not with the other Pharisees. Well, we've met him, so let's get into the story. When he comes to see Jesus, there's a little prepositional phrase that's really important. The Bible says he came to see Jesus at night. Now, 
if you read history of, of the, the times, Jesus probably would have been staying in an upstairs room at the top of a house with a stairwell that went up on the outside of the house, not through the house, so that the person in the top room could have some privacy and could come and go kind of on their own schedule. So in order to see Jesus, Nicodemus would have had to walk through a street at night. Nobody walked at night. They thought the air was dangerous. He came by himself at night, walked up the stairway, no doubt, looked to see if anybody was watching and knocked on Jesus' door. I always tell you I hope that God keeps his stuff in the video library, but I would love to see the moment where, Nick, where Jesus opens the door and Nicodemus is standing there. Nicodemus is a celebrity in town. He's used to people going crazy if he shows up. So maybe he's thinking that this young 33-year-old carpenter, this young teacher, is going to open up the door and look at Nicodemus and say, Wow, it's you. I can't believe you came to my house. I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus opened the door and just looked at him as if to say, What are you here for? So Nicodemus stammers out. Verse 2, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. In other words, it's like, I'm not with my friends who hate your guts and want you dead. I want you to know I think you're okay. That's what he came for. He came to let Jesus know that he approves of him. Jesus just completely fouls off that pitch. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says this to him. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Four verses later, in verse 7, Jesus puts an exclamation point on it, and he says to the most religious man in Jerusalem, you must be born again. Now, when you think about this for a moment, Jesus has just told the leading religious expert in Jerusalem, he's not ready to go to heaven. And what's peculiar about that is he's the first person that we would think would get it. But this is the guy, and Nicodemus was the guy, if somebody in Jerusalem had a question about religion, you'd make an appointment with him if you could get one. And let's remember, even though Nicodemus is extremely religious, he's not a hypocrite, and he's very sincere. Why would Jesus say to him, Nicodemus, if you were to die today, you wouldn't go to heaven? Well, right now, let's forget about Nicodemus. We don't need to worry about him because he got it all figured out. He got, he got, he got it right. Let's think about you and me because this is way bigger than we can possibly imagine. If this guy wasn't okay, if Nicodemus wasn't okay with his religion to get into heaven, we can forget about our religion being good enough. I wrote this down before I walked out here. I didn't, didn't use this last night. You want to know what relig Nicodemus religion was like? You, want to, you, want to, you say, well, I grew up Baptist or I grew up Catholic or I grew up Methodist or Pentecostal or Buddhist or Hindu. You want to, you want to match your religion? Because you know, some people will say, well, I, I don't know that I need to be born again because I grew up, I, I've always been religious. I've always believed in God. Why don't you see if you, I don't see how your religion matches up against this. When Nicodemus was two years old, they would have covered the Torah in honey and had him taste it so that he would know from the earliest stage that the Bible was sweet. At the age of four, he would start memorizing the book of Leviticus. By the age of 12, 
he would have had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. By the way, that's 187 chapters by the age 12. As a teenager, he would have memorized the prophets. That may not sound like much, but just take a look at the size of the book of Isaiah. And the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. By the time he's a teenager, he's memorized the prophets and the book of Psalms. How many chapters the Psalms have? Has 150. 100, Psalm 119's got 176 verses. I read where one rabbi spent three years studying one chapter of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to belabor this today. I'm just telling you, if you are holding on to your religion as a means to getting into heaven, match up with this guy. We can't even begin to. He fasted two days a week. He went to the temple to pray three times a day. And he is very sincere. I'm telling you, if this guy's religion wasn't okay, we can forget about our religion being good enough. We can forget about our life being clean enough. Because Nicodemus, I mean, if you looked at what he did do and what he didn't do, I mean, we would be blown away by the way he checks the boxes and keeps the rules. So with that out of the way, what was it? that was keeping him from going to heaven. Fortunately, we don't have to look very far because Jesus has said two times, he said, first of all, except you are born again, you can't even see into heaven. And then in verse seven, he said, you must be born again. Oh, must is a powerful word, isn't it? Must means if I don't do what I must do, it's attached to negative consequences. I mean, Jesus didn't say you should be born again. You ought to take this into consideration being born again or you can be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, put yourself in Nicodemus' place. He's not a young man. He's done all the stuff that we talked about. He is the leading Bible expert in the city of Jerusalem. And he's a very sincere follower of God in his mind. So Jesus has just stood there and said, you're not ready to go to heaven. Unless you're born again, you can't even see into it. And you must be born again. Well, just as we saw last week, the Samaritan woman threw up some roadblocks to Jesus. You can imagine that Nicodemus is going to have some pushback to this. Let's look at the first one. In John chapter 3, in verse 4, Nicodemus said, what do you mean? That's a fair question. I mean, Jesus has just told him he has to do something that he can't believe is possible. And so Nicodemus, by the way, have you ever shared your faith with someone and they respond back in absurdium? They'll respond back as if to say, that's bizarre what you're asking me to consider. And that's what Nicodemus does. Jesus said, Nicodemus said, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Wow, I really need more time than I'm going to take here, but let me take a crack at this. If there are two words in the evangelical world that have been stretched out of shape, it is these words, born again. Y'all are all too young to remember how this happened. But in 1976, there was a political candidate on the Democratic Party for president named Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter, in an early interview as he was running for president, told everyone he was born again. Boom. All of a sudden, those words are in, they're in the American lexicon. And from that time, there have been all kinds of ideas about what it meant to be born again. 
But do you remember, if you, if you haven't watched the message from last week, I hope you'll, you'll get it, because Jesus talks to people on their level. And remember the Samaritan woman had come for water, and Jesus used water as a metaphor for salvation. He had said to her, if you would trust me, I'd give you living water. Well, now Jesus is going to use this term born again because it means something specific to Nicodemus. Let me try this and see if it works. If you want to ask Nicodemus why he thinks he's going to heaven, he would say, it goes back to my birth. I was born a Jew. I was born a descendant of Abraham. I was born into a family that believed in God. I, I grew, the, the way I was raised, I grew up learning the Bible. I grew up going to synagogue. I grew up doing all these things about God. It, it, is, it is my background. It is how I was born. And I've heard people do that today. Well, I was born into a Baptist family. I was born into a Catholic family. I was catechized. I was confirmed. I, I grew up with the sacraments. I, I grew up Lutheran. I grew up Hindu. I grew up Jewish. Do, do we understand that what Jesus is saying when he uses that term born again, he's saying that's not enough. In other words, he didn't say, Nicodemus, you were, born, you were born wrong. He just said, you have to be born again. Now look at how Jesus responded to him. Jesus said, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. One of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because a lot of people teach that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. They say, oh, you have to be born of water, that's baptism. And you have to be born of the spirit. The Bible makes such great sense if we let it speak for itself. It doesn't mean baptism there because Jesus has said you have to be born a second time. Work with me for a second. I don't know if ladies, you know, ladies who are pregnant, I don't know if they still use this terminology or not, but in, in, my, in my era, there was a sentence that a woman could say who was pregnant and getting ready to give birth. There's a sentence that she could say that would start the race to the hospital. My, oh, you guys have it. My water broke. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, you got to have that birth, but that's not enough. Now, now read the context. Jesus said you have to be born of water and the spirit. Humans can only re reproduce human life. That's the water birth. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. And then he goes on to say the wind blows where it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the spirit. The good news of salvation is the same for every person here, but it would be so cool if all of us in this service could, who have accepted Christ, if we could tell our stories about how we came to faith, because we would have come to faith from so many different angles. And Jesus said, that's the way the Spirit of God works. So now Nicodemus has a second thing to throw up. He said, how are these things possible? In other words, you're telling me I have to be born again, and you're telling me this is a spiritual birth, how, is the, how does this happen? In essence, what he's saying, with all I've done to get into heaven, what could I have possibly left out? And as I said a few moments ago, Nicodemus is going to get this sorted out, so we're not worried about Nicodemus. We're concerned about you and me. I want to take you now to the most famous part of the Bible, which is in this story in John 3. Because Jesus is going to tell you and me how to get into heaven. These verses are so important, I'm going to read them twice. And each time I read them, I want you to focus on two ideas. 
Jesus is going to talk about believing in Jesus. Because he's going to talk about how you get to heaven, how you're born again. Now, because we want to focus on both of those, I want to read these verses the first time, and I want you to focus on the times that Jesus is referred to. Because see, here's the thing. Some of you think that you're going to heaven has to do with you. So Jesus is going to tell us how to go to heaven. See if you're in this group of scriptures or if Jesus is there, okay? Let's watch. Here we go. John 3, most famous verse in the Bible. For God loved the world so much. And remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. When Nicodemus came to see Jesus, Nicodemus is showing up saying, look at me, I have lived the life that I should live. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, that's not enough. You're going to have to be born all over again. But when he tells him how to be born all over again, notice how that Jesus said, it's on Jesus. Now, if Jesus is the source of that new birth, how do we access that? I mean, do we like get so many hours of community service and, and that's all we need to do? Do we join a particular church? Do we give some money? I mean, if Jesus is the one who is the gatekeeper for getting into heaven, how do we access that new birth? We're going to read the same verses. This time, we're going to focus on the word believe. Watch. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Do, could it be any clearer than that? Jesus is saying what you need to do in order to go to heaven is you have to put your confidence and faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf that you cannot do for yourself. So as I get ready to close this message, how, how did Nicodemus do with all this? I mean, he walks up the most respected religious scholar in Israel How does he do with Jesus telling him, you're not ready to go to heaven, you have to be born again, and the way to be born again is to put confidence and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew what was in his mind. Nicodemus was like, I don't know how I'm doing with all this new teaching. So Jesus hit him with something he would know about. I mean, Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew the stories of Moses better than he knew anything else. We talked about that a few moments ago. He started memorizing this stuff when he was four years old. So he would have, I, don't, I mean, if he memorized Leviticus first, probably the next verse he would have, next book he would have memorized was Numbers. And in Numbers, there's a story of when Moses was leading the Israelites into the wilderness. And, 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 and they started complaining about, well, we'll read this in just a moment. But I want you to see what Jesus said to Nicodemus first. This is in John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, 
So must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Well, as I said a moment ago, what happened was when Moses was leading the Israelites into the wilderness, well, let's read it. The people grew impatient with the long journey and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and many were bitten and died. Now, every time I read this, I think to myself, snakes would have got my attention. <laughs> now, some of you like snakes. You know, I, I have people who have pet snakes. I hope you don't live in my neighborhood. I really do. I grew up in Fort Worth. We had a world-class zoo there in Fort Worth. I would have friends and family that would come to see us. They would want to go to the zoo. We had a world-class herpetarium there, and I had friends who would say, you want to go through the herpetarium with me? No, I don't. I'll be on the outside when you get out. There are only two kinds of snakes. There are those that will hurt you and those that will make you hurt yourself. And I hate snakes. I hate snakes. So, I mean, the people are flipping God off and they're saying, you know, we're tired of this manna and you just brought us out here to kill us. And God said, all right, I will get your attention. I'm, I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to send snakes. It would have gotten my attention. And a bunch of people were bitten and they died. And the people cried out, verse 7, to Moses, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away these snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Now look at this. This is where it really gets interesting and it ties us back up with what Jesus told Nicodemus. The Lord said to him, make a replica of the poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. Which, by the way, this is still the symbol of medicine. It's still the international symbol of medicine. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole that anyone who was bitten by the snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Did the bronze snake kill them? No, God healed them. But he had something for them to do. He had them to have an act of faith. They were to look. The most beautiful thing to me about salvation is that anybody can have it. You know... When I think about the bronze snake, and I've thought about this so many times, when, when Moses or whoever he had walked through the camp with the bronze snake, when people looked, they, they, didn't, they weren't all in the same spiritual situation. I mean, some were like very good people that were nice to their neighbors and studied the Bible, and they got bit by a snake, and they looked, and, and they were healed. But there were probably hell raisers that were bitten by snakes that had the fang marks, and they looked at the snake, and they were healed. I mean, they came from all different kinds of spiritual scenarios. But the way to be healed was just to take God at his word. We preach the good news of Jesus here at New Spring. And every once in a while, there are these uber-religious elite people that will criticize us. I don't, they don't do it to my face, but I, I hear it like, well, this is a church that is, believes in easy believism. It's one of the stupidest comments that's ever been made. Because you either believe or you don't believe. But here is what I do know. I know that believing is a choice. See, here's the thing. There are people listening to me today who are God followers. Do you have every bit of evidence? I mean, could, could you lay, put all the cards on the table with all the evidence? Do you, do you have every evidence that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? Well, I think I, do, I think I do have some compelling evidence. 
But I would have to be honest. I, I don't know that I have every answer for every question. But here's what I have in my hip pocket this morning. If you don't believe and you're a non-theist, you don't have evidence either. I could back you into a corner so fast you couldn't get out of. The fact of the matter is, none of us is going to have all the evidence for any belief system. If you believe anything, you say, well, Mark, I, I got to have proof. Proof is always subjective. Evidence is objective. Proof is subjective. Whatever you believe, there's going to have to be a moment where you say, I have seen the evidence cross the threshold that is adequate for belief. And then the rest of the way, you have to choose. When you get right down to it, Jesus is asking us a pretty big thing. Jesus is asking for you to take the word of God and the proof that you have, which I enjoy making a compelling case for that, and then make the choice to believe. Every human being on the planet will make that choice to believe some narrative for this world that's baked in when we arrive here. Jesus said to the most religious man in the world, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Nicodemus like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This and I'm through. Nicodemus would come out on another night for Jesus. It was the night of Jesus' crucifixion. The Romans were very brutal. When they crucified somebody, they wanted to leave the bodies on the crosses as long as possible and let the Birds come and pick at their flesh as if to say, don't mess with Rome or this will be you. So even Jesus' mother and the other women and John all went away and left Jesus' body on the cross. By now it's gray, blood streaked. A couple of senators do a very brave thing. They go to Pilate and they say, out of respect, we would like to take charge of the body of Jesus of Nazareth. One is Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb Jesus will borrow for three days. And the other is a senator named Nicodemus. I see them go out to the cross, and I always wonder if it was Nicodemus who pulled the nails. Somebody had to pull the nails. I always wonder about that. If this brilliant senator who knew so much about the Bible was the one who took the claw and pulled the nails out of the cross. I don't know if he got it the night that he came to see Jesus, but I think he got it then. When Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever, the first person in the world, the last person in the world, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I got to ask you a question. Have you been born again? It's not enough to be the first time, be born the first time. You have to have a spiritual birth. And only God can do that. And that happens when you take everything that you are 
and you give it to everything that God is through Jesus Christ. And you say, I can't live a perfect life, but I'm, I'm gonna let Jesus pinch hit for me. I'm gonna let him live that life I can't live. And, and, I, and I don't wanna pay the penalty for all my sin. I'd have to go to hell to do that. So I'm gonna one more time back away and I'm gonna let Jesus pay for my sin on the cross. And I believe that he arose from the grave. And so, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do the one thing that God asked. I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna put my confidence in Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't have time to teach this, but I want to so bad. What does it mean to believe? The biblical definition, because every once in a while people are like, well, what does it mean to believe? Okay, so three things. I'll just say it quickly. Number one, in order to believe, there must be a message. You can't, you can't believe unless there's a message to be believed. Well, the message is that Jesus died for you and rose in the grave. Second part of believing is agreeing with it. Because here's the thing. You can hear that story and you say, I don't agree. Okay. But if you hear that story and say, I agree. And then the third thing that's necessary for believing is just to put your confidence in it. I never flew till I was 36 or 35. I, was, I, don't, I don't like heights. I could have lectured you on airline safety. I knew it was the safest thing in the world. But I fly all over the world now, but I never will forget that day at that time, Mid-Continent Airport. I'll walk through the airport and I got on that TWA plane. And that's what it means to put your trust in Jesus. It's not enough. To, you can know all about the Bible like Nicodemus did, but there's that moment where you just say, I put all my confidence in Jesus. And when that happens, God bursts you into his family. Well, I can't leave this service without giving you an opportunity to pray and have that moment. If you would like to invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you want to, you can pray this prayer with me. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. I do believe in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift box. If you're on campus, do not leave without this. It's free. It won't cost you anything. There's a book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions. I even get into those three aspects of believe a little more. And then a new spring Bible and some other cool stuff. All you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. Go out to any info center. They have this for you right now. You can take it home with you. If you're watching online, text PRAYED to 97000, and we'll send it to you. Bye. We'll see you next week. God bless. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.